Section 15 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought, and Art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Hutzinger. Translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Religious Thought Crystallizing into Images, Part 2. We not infrequently find individual expressions of avowed unbelief. Beaux seigneurs, says Captain Betasac, to his comrades when about to die, I have attended to my spiritual concerns, and, in my conscience, I believe I have greatly angered God, having for a long time already erred against the faith. And I cannot believe a word about the Trinity, nor that the Son of God has humbled himself to such an extent as to come down from heaven into the carnal body of a woman. And I believe and say that when we die there is no such thing as a soul. I have held this opinion ever since I became self-conscious, and I shall hold it till the end. The provost of Paris, Hugh Habriot, is a violent hater of the clergy. He does not believe in the sacrament of the altar. He makes a mock of it. He does not keep Easter. He does not go to confession. Jacques de Clerc relates that several noblemen, in full possession of their faculties, refused extreme unction. Perhaps we should regard these isolated cases of unbelief less as willful heresy than as a spontaneous reaction against the incessant and pressing call of the faith, arising from a culture overcharged with religious images and concepts. In any case, they should not be confounded either with the literary and superficial paganism of the Renaissance, nor with the prudent Epicureanism of some aristocratic circles from the thirteenth century downward, nor, above all, with the passionate negation of ignorant heretics who had passed the boundary line between mysticism and pantheism. The naive religious conscience of the multitude had no need of intellectual proofs in matters of faith, the mere presence of a visible image of things holy sufficed to establish their truth. No doubts intervened between the sight of all those pictures and statues, the persons of the Trinity, the flames of hell, the innumerable saints, and belief in their reality. All these conceptions became matters of faith in the most direct manner. They passed straight from the state of images to that of convictions, taking root in the mind as pictures clearly outlined and vividly colored, possessing all the reality claimed for them by the church, and even a little more. Now, when faith is too directly connected with a pictured representation of doctrine, it runs the risk of no longer making qualitative distinctions between the nature and the degree of sanctity of the different elements of religion. The image by itself does not teach the faithful that one should adore God, and only venerate the saints. Its psychological function is limited to creating a deep conviction of reality and a lively feeling of respect. It therefore became the task of the Church to warn incessantly against want of discrimination in this respect, and to preserve the purity of doctrine by explaining precisely what the image stood for. Into no other sphere was the danger of luxuriance of religious thought caused by a vivid imagination more obvious. Now, the Church did not fail to teach that all honors rendered to the saints, to relics, 
to holy places should have god for their object although the prohibition of images in the second commandment of the decalogue was abrogated by the new law or limited to god the father alone the church proposed nevertheless to maintain intact the principle of non adoribus inique coles images were only meant to show simple-minded people what to believe they are the books of the illiterate says clemangius a thought which villon has expressed in the touching lines which he puts into his mother's mouth in translation i am a poor old woman who knows nothing i never could read in my parish church i see paradise painted where are harps and lutes and a hell where the damned are boiled the one frightens me the other brings joy and mirth the medieval church was however rather heedless of the danger of a deteriorating of the faith caused by the popular imagination roaming unchecked in the sphere of hagiology an abundance of pictorial fancy after all furnished to the simple mind quite as much matter for deviating from pure doctrine as any personal interpretation of holy scripture it is remarkable that the church so scrupulous in dogmatic matters should have been so confiding and indulgent towards those who sinning out of ignorance rendered more homage to images than was lawful it suffices says gerson that they meant to do as the church requires thus towards the end of the middle ages an ultra-realistic conception of all that related to the saints may be noticed in the popular faith the saints had become so real and such familiar characters of current religion that they became bound up with all the more superficial religious impulses while profound devotion still centred on christ and his mother quite a host of artless beliefs and fancies clustered about the saints everything contributed to make them familiar and lifelike they were dressed like the people themselves every day one met messieurs st roche and st james in the persons of living plague patients and pilgrims down to the renaissance the costume of the saints always followed the fashion of the times only then did sacred art by arraying the saints in classical draperies withdraw them from the popular imagination and place them in a sphere where the fancy of the multitude could no longer contaminate the doctrine in its purity the distinctly corporeal conception of the saints was accentuated by the veneration of their relics not only permitted by the church but forming an integral part of religion it was inevitable that this pious attachment to material things should draw all hagiolatry into a sphere of crude and primitive ideas and lead to surprising extremes in the matter of relics the deep and straightforward faith of the middle ages was never afraid of disillusionment or profanation through handling holy things coarsely the spirit of the fifteenth century did not differ much from that of the umbrian peasants who about the year one thousand wished to kill st romuald the hermit in order to make sure of his precious bones or of the monks of fossa who after st thomas aquinas had died in their monastery in their fear of losing the relic did not shrink from decapitating boiling and preserving the body during the lying in state of st elizabeth of hungary in twelve thirty one a crowd of worshippers came and cut or tore strips of the linen enveloping her face they cut off the hair the nails even the nipples 
in 1392, King Charles VI of France, on the occasion of a solemn feast, was seen to distribute ribs of his ancestor, St. Louis, St. Louis, to Pierre Daly, and to his uncles Barry and Burgundy, he gave entire ribs, to the prelates one bone to divide between them, which they proceeded to do after the meal. It may well be that this too corporeal and familiar aspect, this too clearly outlined shape of the saints, has been the very reason why they occupy so little space in the sphere of visions and supernatural experience. The whole domain of ghost-seeing, signs, specters, and apparitions, so crowded in the Middle Ages, lies mainly apart from the veneration of the saints. Of course, there are exceptions, as St. Michael, St. Catherine, and St. Margaret appearing to Joan of Arc, and other instances might be added. But, generally speaking, popular phantasmagoria is full of angels, devils, shades of the dead, white women, but not of saints. Stories of apparitions of particular saints are, as a rule, suspect of having already undergone some ecclesiastical or literary interpretation. To the agitated beholder, a phantom has no name and hardly a shape. In the famous vision of Frankenthal, in 1446, the young shepherd sees fourteen cherubim, all alike, who tell him they are the fourteen holy martyrs to whom Christian iconography attributed such distinct and marked appearances. Where a primitive superstition does not attach to the veneration of some saint, it retains something of the vague and formless character that is essential to superstition. As in the case of St. Bertulf at Ghent, who can be heard wrapping the sides of his coffin in St. Peter's Abbey, very frequently and very loudly, as a warning of impending calamity. The saint, with his clearly outlined figure, his well-known attributes and features, as they were painted or carved in the churches, was wholly lacking in mystery. He did not inspire terror, as do vague phantoms and the haunting unknown. The dread of the supernatural is due to the undefined character of its phenomena. As soon as they assume a clear-cut shape, they are no longer horrible. The familiar figures of the saints produced some sort of reassuring effect as the sight of a policeman in a foreign city. The complex of ideas connected with the saints constituted, so to say, a neutral zone of calm and domestic piety between the ecstasy of contemplation and of the love of Christ, on the one hand, and the horrors of demonomania, on the other. It is perhaps not too bold to assert that the veneration of the saints, by draining off an overflow of religious effusion and holy fear, acted on the exuberant piety of the Middle Ages as a salutary sedative. The veneration of the saints has its place among the more outward manifestations of faith. It is subject to the influences of popular fancy rather than that of theology, and they sometimes deprive it of its dignity. The special cult of St. Joseph, toward the end of the Middle Ages, is characteristic in this respect. It may be looked upon as the counterpart of the passionate adoration of the Virgin. The curiosity with which Joseph was regarded is a sort of reaction from the fervent cult of Mary. The figure of the Virgin is exalted more and more, and that of Joseph becomes more and more of a caricature. Art portrays him as a clown dressed in rags. As such, he appears in the diptych by Melchior Brodelam at Dijon. 
literature, which is always more explicit than the graphic arts, achieves the feat of making him altogether ridiculous. Instead of admiring Joseph as the man most highly favored of all, Deschamps represents him as the type of the drudging husband. In translation, you who serve as wife and children always bear Joseph in mind. He served his wife gloomily and mournfully, and he guarded Jesus Christ in his infancy. He went on foot with his bundle slung on his staff. In several places he is pictured thus, beside a mule to give them pleasure, and so he never had any amusement in this world. And again, still more grossly, what poverty Joseph suffered, what hardships, what misery, when God was born. Many a time he has carried him, and placed him, in his goodness, with his mother too, on his mule, and took them with him. I saw him painted thus. He went into Egypt. The good man is painted quite exhausted, and dressed in a frock and a striped garment, a stick across his shoulder, old, spent, and broken. For him there was no amusement in this world. But of him, people say, that is Joseph, the fool. This shows how familiarity led to irreverence of thought. St. Joseph remained a comic type, in spite of the very special reverence paid to him. Dr. Eck, Luther's adversary, had to insist that he should not be brought on the stage, or at least that he should not be made to cook the porridge. Ne ecclesia die irredaritur. The union of Joseph and Mary always remained the object of deplorable curiosity, in which profane speculation mingled with sincere piety. The Chevalier de la Tour Landry, a man of prosaic mind, explains it to himself in the following manner, in translation, God wished that she should marry that saintly man Joseph, who was old and upright, for God wished to be born in wedlock, to comply with the current legal requirements, to avoid gossip. An unpublished work of the fifteenth century represents the mystic marriage of the soul with a celestial spouse as if it were a middle-class wedding. If it pleases you, says Jesus to the Father, I shall marry, and shall have a large bevy of children and relations. The Father fears a misalliance, but the angel succeeds in persuading him that the betrothed elect is worthy of the Son, on which the Father gives his consent in these terms, in translation, Take her, for she is pleasing, and fit to love her sweet bridegroom. Now take plenty of our possessions, and give them to her in abundance. There is no doubt of the seriously devout intention of this treatise. It is only an instance of the degree of triviality entailed by unbridled exuberance of fancy. Every saint, by the possession of a distinct and vivid outward shape, had his own marked individuality, quite contrary to the angels, who, with the exception of the three famous archangels, required no definite appearance. This individual character of each saint was still more strongly accentuated by the special functions attributed to many of them. Now this specialization of the kind of aid given by the various saints was apt to introduce a mechanical element into the veneration paid to them. If, for instance, St. Roque is especially invoked against the plague, almost inevitably too much stress came to be laid on his part in the healing and the idea, required by sound doctrine, that the saint wrought the cure only by means of his intercession with God, came in danger of being lost sight of. 
this was especially so in the case of the holy martyrs whose number is usually given as fourteen and sometimes as five eight ten fifteen their veneration arose and spread towards the end of the middle ages in translation there are five saints in the genealogy and five female saints to whom god granted benignantly at the end of their lives that whoever shall invoke their help with all his heart in all dangers that he will hear their prayers in all disorders whatsoever he therefore is wise who serves these five george dennis christopher giles and blaze the church had sanctioned the popular belief expressed by deschamps in these verses by instituting an office of the fourteen auxiliary saints the binding character of their intercession is clearly expressed o god who hast distinguished thy chosen saints george and so forth with special privileges before all others that all those who in their need invoke their help shall obtain the salutary fulfilment of their prayer according to the promise of thy grace so there had been a formal delegation of divine omnipotence the people could therefore not be blamed if with regard to these privileged saints it forgot the pure doctrine a little the instantaneous effect of prayer addressed to them contributed still more to obscure their part as intercessors they seemed to be exercising divine power by virtue of a power of attorney hence it is very natural that the church abolished this special office of the fourteen auxiliary saints after the council of trent the extraordinary function attributed to them had given rise to the grossest superstition such as the belief that it sufficed to have looked at a saint christopher painted or carved to be protected for the rest of the day from a fatal end this explains the countless number of the saints images at the entrances of churches as for the reason why this group was singled out among all the saints it should be noticed that the greater number of them appear in art with some very striking attribute saint acacius wore a crown of thorns saint giles was accompanied by a hind saint george by a dragon saint christopher was of gigantic stature saint blaise was represented in a den of wild beasts saint syriac with a chained devil saint dennis carrying his head under his arm saint erasmus being disemboweled by means of a windlass saint eustace with a stag carrying a cross between its antlers saint pantaleon with a lion saint vitus in a cauldron saint barbara with her tower saint catherine with her wheel and sword saint margaret with a dragon it may well be that the special favor with which the fourteen auxiliary saints were regarded was due at least partially to the very impressive character of their images the names of several saints were inseparably bound up with diverse disorders and even served to designate them thus various cutaneous diseases were called saint anthony's evil gout went by the name of saint mars evil the terrors of the plague called for more than one saintly protector saint sebastian saint roque saint giles saint christopher saint valentine saint adrian were all honored in this capacity by offices processions and fraternities now here lurked another menace to the purity of the faith as soon as the thought of the disease discharged with feelings of horror and fear presented itself to the mind the thought of the saint sprang up at the same instance how easily then did the saint himself become the object of this fear so that to him was ascribed the heavenly wrath that unchained the scourge 
instead of unfathomable divine justice it was the anger of the saint which seemed the cause of the evil and required to be appeased since he healed the evil why should he not be its author on these lines the transition from christian ethic to heathen magic was only too easy the church could not be held responsible unless we are to blame her carelessness regarding the adulteration of the pure doctrine in the minds of the ignorant there are numerous testimonies to show that the people sometimes really regarded certain saints as the authors of disorders though it would be hardly fair to consider as such those oaths which almost attributed to saint anthony the part of an evil fire demon may saint anthony burn me saint anthony burn the brothel saint anthony burn the beast these are lines by coyart so deschamps makes some poor fellow say in translation saint anthony sells me his evil all too dear he stokes the fire in my body and thus apostrophizes a gouty beggar you cannot walk all the better you save the toil saint mar will not make you tremble robert gauguin who was not at all hostile to the veneration of the saints in his de validorum perfrancium mundicatium vari astucia describes beggars in these terms one falls on the ground expectorating malodorous spittle and attributes his condition to st john others are covered with ulcers through the fault of st viacris the hermit you o damian prevent them from making water st anthony burns their joints st pius makes them lame and paralyzed in one of his colloquies erasmus makes fun of this belief one of the interlocutors asks whether in heaven the saints are more malevolent than they were on earth yes answers the other in the glory of paradise the saints do not choose to be insulted who was sweeter than saint corneille more compassionate than saint anthony more patient than saint john the baptist during their lives and now what horrible maladies they send if they are not properly honoured rabelais states that the lower class of preachers themselves represented saint sebastian to their congregation as the author of the plague and saint eutropius of dropsy henri estienne has written of the same superstitions in the like manner that they existed is thus clearly established the emotional constituents of the veneration of the saints had fastened so firmly on the forms and colors of their images that the more aesthetic perception was constantly threatening to obliterate the religious element the vivid impression presented by the aspect of the images with their pious or ecstatic looks rich gilding and sumptuous apparel all admirably reproduced by a very realistic art left hardly any room for doctrinal reflection effusions of piety went out ardently towards those glorious beings without a thought being given to the limits fixed by the church in the popular imagination the saints were living and were as gods there is nothing surprising therefore in the fact that strict pietists like the brethren of the common life and the windesheim canons saw a certain danger to popular piety in the development of the veneration of saints it is very remarkable however that the same idea occurs to a man like eustace de Champs, a superficial poet and a commonplace mind and for that very reason so faithful a mirror of the general aspirations of his time in translation 
do not make gods of silver of gold of wood of stone or of bronze that lead people to idolatry because the work has a pleasant shape their coloring of which i complain the beauty of shining gold make many ignorant people believe that these are god for certain and they serve by foolish thoughts such images as stand about in churches where they place too many of them that is very ill done in short let us not adore such counterfeits prince let us only believe in one god and let us adore him to perfection in the fields everywhere for this is right no false gods of iron or of stone stones which have no understanding let us not adore such counterfeits perhaps we may consider the diligent propagation of the cult of guardian angels towards the end of the middle ages as a sort of unconscious reaction against the motley crowd of popular hagiography too large a part of the living faith had been crystallized in the veneration of the saints and thus there arose a craving for something more spiritual as an object of reference and as a source of protection in addressing itself to the angel vaguely conceived and almost formless piety restored contact with the supernatural and with mystery once more it is jean gerson the indefatigable worker for the purity of faith whom we find perpetually recommending the cult of the guardian angel but here also he had to combat unbridled curiosity which threatened to submerge piety under a mass of commonplace details and it was just in connection with this subject of angels which was more or less unbroken ground that numbers of delicate questions obtruded themselves do they never leave us do they know beforehand whether we shall be saved or lost had christ a guardian angel will the antichrist have one can the angel speak to our soul without visions do the angels lead us to good as devils lead us to evil leave these subtle speculations to divines concludes gerson let the faithful keep to simple and wholesome worship a hundred years after gerson wrote the reformation attacked the cult of the saints and nowhere in the whole contested area did it meet with less resistance in strong contrast with the belief in witchcraft and demonology which fully maintained their ground in protestant countries both among the clergy and the laity the saints fell without a blow being struck in their defence this was possibly due to the fact that nearly everything connected with the saints had become caput mortuum piety had depleted itself in the image the legend the office all its contents had been so completely expressed that mystic awe had evaporated the cult of the saints was no longer rooted in the domain of the unimaginable in the case of demonology these roots remained as terribly strong as ever when therefore catholic reform had to re-establish the cult of the saints its first task was to prune it to cut down the whole luxuriant growth of medieval imagination and establish severe discipline so as to prevent a reflorescence End of section 15